This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle, and this is the week of March 6, 2023, the end of the high school reunion tournament. But before we jump into those games, Emily, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I am fresh off of the fourth grade musical. My, in which you performed, right? Uh, my kid was in the stage right props crew for Lion King Kids, and Lion King is a great show. Well, the fourth graders did great with it, but also their fourth graders performing in a in a cafetorium. You know, it's just it's just a great show. The music is great. The story is great. Everything's uh, great. So I'm feeling very inspired about the magic of theater. Um, <laughs> Aren't we all? Uh, yeah, it was charming. It was it was lovely. They did such a good job with it. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, I've known these kids since they were in kindergarten, a lot of them. It was just so charming. It was great. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. How mm. about you? I'm doing all right. I'm just starting spring break. Yay! Wonderful and necessary. So that's my big news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in a few days, I'll feel rested. I think. I hope so. I hope so too. That's mm-hmm. the goal. Yep. Right now, we have Jeopardy to talk about. Yes. So, you know, I truly don't know how I feel about tournaments not fitting neatly into two weeks or it's even weird. three weeks. It's a little it, weird, especially like the midweek host change mm-hmm, has mm-hmm, me a that, little weirded out. Yes, that especially was weird. But even like, I don't know, I realize on a tape day, you know, it doesn't matter what day of the week it's going to air. You can tape it whenever. But to have a, a semifinal on a Monday or two semifinals on a Monday and Tuesday and then the finals on a Wednesday and Thursday and then you're just back to regular programming feels mm-hmm. weird. And I recognize that ultimately it doesn't matter at all. There's no like universal law that states like it needs to fit comfortably into a five day week, but it just it has felt a bit weird. Yeah, I agree. But anyway, on Monday, March 6th, we get the second semifinal of the high school reunion tournament in which we have Claire Sattler, a senior at Yale University from Bonita Springs, Florida. Stephanie Pearson, a junior at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill from Macon, Georgia, and Justin Bolson, a first-year student at Brown University from Canton, Georgia. So in the Jeopardy round, we have the categories, how often does it happen? Book sequels, history, quotable TV shows, a lot of hot air, and adjectives with A in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. And Justin got out to an early lead and kept it through the whole round. There were times when we were closer, times when we were further away, but... Yeah, he had a pretty pretty dominant first round, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Claire had a lot of trouble, it seemed, getting in on the buzzer. Yeah. We could fight about air fryers again. <laughs> what about air fryers? <laughs> oh, let's see. They came up at the $1,000 level of a lot of hot air. These popular kitchen appliances that cook crispy food without oil are basically small convection ovens, which is exactly what I had to say about them. They're just not fryers. They're, they're convection ovens. Um, then, why are, then why are they called fryers? To market them to people who i don't know why are they who called what, air fryers who what emily i don't what know what are you gonna follow that up with 
who are dunces, who, I, are, mm, who are gullible. It, or, what are you saying, people, Emily? People want healthy food and people want fried food. And, and this is how you get it, obviously. But it's not fried. It's not fried. It's just baked. It, it's baking. It's not frying. Isn't frying just baking really close? We're just talking about the distance between the oil molecule and the surface of the food, Emily. <laughs> and if you want to put a parameter on that, that defines it. Sure, yeah, whatever. Uh-huh. Okay, so the claim here is that you are frying because your food is coated in oil? Sure. Is that your... Okay. Sure. All right. Oh, sure. I've kind I mean, of lost I guess, my own plot here. But... I guess if you don't feel like words have meaning, then wow. you can go with that. Wow. <laughs> All right. It's, it's, huh? it's a little oven. Like, enjoy no, your don't... little ovens. I might get one. I might get a small convection oven <laughs> for my countertop because I've heard that they can be good, but it's not frying it. It's a little pedantic, maybe, even for a Jeopardy podcast. Yeah, whatever. You just <laughs> go ahead. And, Emily is apparently the only person who can define things, so that's great. I mean, I believe the $1,000 clue of, of the a lot of hot air category said the same thing, which is that they're ovens. Which is clearly evidence of the Jeopardy writers listening to our podcast because right. they, they were like, yes, Emily said that. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number one is in the history category at the $600 level and Justin finds it at the seventh pick. He's at 1400 with Stephanie and Claire tied at 200 and he makes it a true Daily Double, which is a great call. And he gets the clue between 1776 and 1783. Thomas Paine wrote crisis papers, each signed with these two words from a familiar early pamphlet. And he got it correct. It's common sense. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Justin has 6,200. Stephanie's made it up to 4,000 and Claire to 2,600. And the double Jeopardy categories are the tech beat, C here, that's C as in S-E-A, study, guides, pop music, more than one meaning, and Pivotal Women, a video category with Melinda French Gates for Women's History Month. I saw or I read something unfortunate about the $1,600 level of that category. Oh, yeah? The the clue was after inspiring millions to join a global climate strike in 2019, this Swedish activist was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. They showed a picture. Of course, Stephanie rang in and said, who is Greta Thunberg, which I believe that mistake specifically has been made on Jeopardy before. Yep. And then what we saw on the edit was time pass. The thing went ding, ding, ding. And then Mayim said, it's Thunberg. You added an R. However, my understanding from what I read was that actually when Stephanie gave the incorrect response, Mayim then gave the correct response, which meant that the others could not ring in to answer it. And apparently the choice that was made was to pretend that that didn't happen, which as discussed on a recent podcast, I went on a whole rant about it, right? When you cover up a production error like that, it makes the contestants look dumb. It does. I think it was Claire, who was commenting on it on like, you know, not to say that that would have changed the outcome of the game, but who knows, maybe it could have, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that was a correct response taken away from someone. That's right. So that is unfortunate if it is in fact valid, which I have no reason to not believe. That is too bad. Too bad indeed. Yeah. They probably should have gone to a backup 
clue there. They yeah. have a sixth clue for every category so that if there is an error yeah, like that or something, you know, they they can just refilm with a whole new clue that nobody's seen. Yeah. I had that same thought. I was curious as to why they didn't. But... Yeah, that's disappointing. Yeah. And it's disappointing that they decided to make the production look smooth like that mm-hmm. and just make it look like Justin and Claire having heard Greta Thunberg no yeah decided not to guess Greta Thunberg right right yeah yeah and there's another production error that comes up later in the week that we will see as well Ooh. Uh, that I will mention I believe yeah. it's on Wednesday the $1,200 level of the TechBeat Award plus three letters. This product from OpenAI is eerily good at traditionally human tasks like writing essays. Claire got it. It's it's chat GPT, which is interesting and troubling and exciting and whatever. I, I would not describe it as eerily good at writing essays. My take from, I guess, from Twitter, at least, is that teachers know when chat GPT has written of an essay. Like mm-hmm. You can tell. I had a congregant send me, they, they decided to experiment with having ChatGPT write a sermon and they sent me the sermon that ChatGPT had come up with for them and said, I think your job is safe for a while. So so similarly with sermons, I did use ChatGPT when I was trying to kind of work out a vacation itinerary and was kind of overwhelmed by like the various moving pieces. I was like, give me oh. a seven day itinerary that includes this, this and this for like people of these ages and these interests. And we didn't do exactly what it said, but it was a nice way to kind of break through the like choice paralysis. So I don't know. It has its uses, but I don't know. Yeah. That's an interesting era to live in. But yeah, I would not describe it as eerily good (laughs) at writing really anything. Yeah. It's eerie in the weirdness that it it Mm -hmm. puts out, but not eerily good. Daily Devil number two is in more than one meaning at the $2,000 level. Claire finds it. She is at 6,600 at this point. Justin is at 10,200. Stephanie is at 6,000. And she wagers 2,000 and gets the clue, a list of passengers on a ship or to become visible or obvious. And she does not have a response, but it is manifest. Mm Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is at the $1,200 level of study guides. Justin finds it at the 15th pick. He's at 12200 in a pretty solid lead with Stephanie at 8800 and Claire at 4600 He wagers 5000 which if he gets it correct, will put him, oh, not quite in lock position, but, you know, closer, mm-hmm. close. And if he misses, he'll be, you know, still kind of in the mix it'll drop him into second he gets the clue from 1936 to 1967 this colorful guide aided african americans in traveling safely during segregation he tries what is the black book but it's the green book yeah like the film of that name which i have not seen that may have gotten it more into the kind of popular consciousness yeah i I Um, agree yeah so that drops him down a bit Yeah, and he has a couple other incorrect responses. So he's everyone's back in it going into the final, which they have the scores. Justin is at 8,400. Stephanie's at 5,200. Claire is at 8,600. And the final Jeopardy category is U.S. history. And the clue is an 1869 presidential pardon was granted to this man due in part to a plea by the Medical Society of Harford County, Maryland. 
I thought this was exceedingly deep. This is yes. I thought it was a very deep pull. I was, I mean, I was briefly like a child, like Abraham Lincoln nerd, you know, so probably not the depths of Abraham Lincoln nerdery, but like, I don't remember having especially learned this person's name. No, I never. Why would we? Yeah. This, I I mean, I realize like a lot of trivia is like, why would you learn that? But okay. Anyway, it's a triple stumper. Makes sense. Stephanie asked or wrote, who is Johnson? Not a bad guess. The cost her thirty five hundred. Justin wrote, "Who is Frederick Douglass?" Which I, no, I, I don't know how I yeah. feel about that. Mm-hmm. That's incorrect too. It's he wagered two thousand and one, and Claire made a cover bet and wrote, "Who is Booth?" I love you all. It's not John Wilkes Booth, of course, or I, any other. I think Booth. they maybe should have written the question so that it was John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. Because I feel that a Final Jeopardy clue should be an interesting fact you didn't know about someone or something that you have heard of, right? Right. And like, maybe I've heard of Dr. Samuel Mudd and like everybody has blind spots, but like, I suspect that this was too deep. Yeah, yeah. So the the correct response is Dr. Samuel Mudd, who apparently is the person who set John Wilkes Booth's broken leg, Mm -hmm. I guess. Again, that is an exceedingly deep pull, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. Yeah. And of course, there'll be people, you know, someone listening to the podcast who's like, I don't think so because I know it. Like, well, okay. Yeah. I, yeah, it's, it seemed wildly obscure to me. Like, out of, you don't, I don't, none of these three tournament semifinalists do. So I don't know. I think it's too deep. I think it should have been Dr. Samuel Mudd was granted an 1869 presidential pardon for setting the leg of this individual, right? Like, And then you've got to figure out, like, who could he treat that it would be? That it would uh, require a presidential pardon. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Justin ends up winning. I think Claire got kind of a raw deal there. Going yeah. into a final with, with the lead, making a cover bet, and then being absolutely just, like, blindsided with that clue. <laughs> yeah. But it's not that Justin doesn't deserve it. He absolutely does. So. When you're going in in a close second, you're hoping for a very difficult final jeopardy. Exactly, exactly. That's the and, hope. And he made the right wager and he played it well. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So he moves on. So on Tuesday, March 7th, we have our third and final semifinal game. The contestants are Tim Joe, a senior at Columbia University from Champaign, Illinois. Maya Wright, a senior at Emory University from Peachtree City, Georgia. And Caleb Richmond, a sophomore sophomore at Georgetown University, (laughs) at Georgetown University from Bedford, New Hampshire. And the Jeopardy round categories are March Madness, American Composers, Why on the Map, This is How I Win, you are supposed to name the game, Mermaids, and Anagrams of Each Other. The triple stumper in the American Composers category at the $600 level was the the clue is a leader and producer of the Wu-Tang Clan. He composed music for Kill Bill, and we can't help hoping he'll work on a song with Siza. I think that's how you pronounce that. S-Z-A. I just recently, like a couple weeks ago, saw the the correct answer is Riza or Riza, or it depends on, I suppose, who you're talking to, RZA from Wu-Tang Clan. He did a collaboration with the Colorado Symphony hmm. where he, it's difficult to describe. So <clears throat> they project scenes from the movie, the 36 Chambers of Shaolin, 
like this old kung fu movie and the orchestra plays the soundtrack except when Riza is spinning his turntables and rapping over it 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 was really cool it was it's very hard as, as you can see it's very hard to describe yeah <laughs> but it was a really cool huh. thing it was it was very cool. interesting anyway like that was there and i was like huh how about that i just i literally just saw this gentleman that's fun yeah this is how i win category we had one like you know ancient board game mm-hmm. we had one monopoly we had monopoly right like so we had one like not ancient but like kind of like older board game and then we had a video game and two sports we had bowling and croquet i would have liked to see a newer board game here but i guess you know that's fine you can't get everything Mm -hmm. you want wingspan yes wingspan is probably too deep of a cut but maybe not there was a new york times Mm -hmm. article about it and everyone reads the new york times because new york is the most important place in the world but i mean i've played wingspan Um, so it's valid yeah it feels it's, like mean, perhaps pandemic would have been a good one in there you know? yeah and like just in general like board games have come so far since monopoly mm-hmm. i would love to see jeopardy raising the profile of kind of the newer generation of board games a little bit rather than kind of going to the same poorly designed old chestnuts mm-hmm. chess chess is beautiful chess is a great game monopoly yes. is a poorly designed game it's because we're not using the real rules like the original, like, communist rules? Right, exactly. Yeah, yes. agreed. Uh, yes. <laughs> anyway, no, not going to go down that road. Daily Double number one is in the Y on the map category at the $1,000 level. It's pick number six, and Caleb finds it. He's at 1,600, Maya's at zero, Tim's at 2,800. He bets it all. Gets the clue. Site of a historic 1945 conference, this city on the Crimean Peninsula is known for its many health resorts. And he gets correct with what is Yalta. Oh, also, apparently, he gave a shout out to Sam Buttry before and said, I'd like to wager all of the dollars that I am legally allowed to. <laughs> it's very good. It's good. It was good. Good job. Good job, yeah. man. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Caleb's at 3,200, Maya's at 3,400, and Tim is in the lead at 8,200. And the double Jeopardy categories are the Royal Past, College Talk, Science, Alliterative Authors, Official State Stuff, and Recent Commercials. The $2,000 level of the Royal Past, Xerxes praised Artemisia, warrior queen of this city, and according to legend, gave her a jar that was later found in a mausoleum. That's Halicarnassus. It's Halicarnassus. It's Halicarnassus. Apparently, Mayim didn't want to say it. Why not? It's not hard to pronounce Halicarnassus. Mm. I don't know. She said you're going to make me say it. I don't. I don't get that. I don't yeah. know why. But whatever. Now, if it were Emily hosting, then I would understand that. Being like, I you're don't want. Me say I don't this. want to ever think about the mausoleum. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. That's fine. I'm, the, it yeah. was for anyone who doesn't know. It was my missed daily double three, which was the reason I went into final jeopardy in second place instead of first place. But hey, Kyle went to the tournament of champions because he won his fifth game. I did. Uh, yeah, I did. And here we are. For which I am grateful. <laughs> You're welcome. That's why. That's why I did it. That's why. Yes. I, no, I, I could not. I, I couldn't parse the clue in time. You were practicing the self-sacrificial nature. 
Yes. <laughs> the one that you claimed. Before. I I just got bored and wanted to go home to my family. Yeah, it got. I was tired of being there. Yeah, that was that was driving me bananas. Like right after James Holt's hour loss, when people are like, "Well, probably got tired of being in LA. I wanted to go home to his family." You don't you don't know how Jeopardy works. No, Stop absolutely it. not. <laughs> Nobody is. Ken spent like four months there. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets tired. Anyway. And you're not there the whole time. It's not like you're on every night. No, you, it's not you live. Record, you record five shows, two days in a row, and then you leave. For two weeks. Yeah, you go mm-hmm. home. Yeah. Yep. The $2,000 level of alliterative authors, she followed up the Song of Achilles with the equally mythological Circe. That's Madeline Miller. And I've read Circe and the Song of Achilles is on my to be read list you've talked about that on the podcast i remember I you talking I, about yeah Cersei. yeah Cersei was great i'm looking forward to eventually getting around to the song of achilles so that's a name to know for trivia purposes but also a good read and i feel like i'm much better like it helped me with some of my greek like mythology stuff too oh, nice. yeah i mean it was all kind of stories i was familiar with but like when you read a novelization like it i don't know i feel like sometimes it can be helpful in terms of like you're spending more time with those figures and mm-hmm. things stick in your memory a, li- a little better yeah yeah for sure yeah. i took issue with the 1200 clue of official state stuff this ruby imposter is the state gem of new york and the birthstone for january yeah uh, that seems awfully judgmental to say that it is an imposter uh-huh like i'm sure garnet is not trying to pretend to be ruby it's she is just her red. own person yeah or gemstone that <laughs> or, is, or semi-precious that is, stone <laughs> that is my birthstone yeah and to have it reduced to simply a ruby imposter just a knockoff yeah just a bargain bin ruby <laughs> Ugh, a wannabe ruby it is mm-hmm. mm, mm. yeah it is deeper and darker than it's a ruby. more interesting is, color yeah amen Anyway, I'm with you. I'm with you. Justice for Garnet. Um, Yeah. Daily Double number two is at the $1,600 level of official state stuff. And Caleb finds it at the third pick. He's at $5,200 at this point. Tim's in the lead with $8,200. Maya's at $5,000. And Caleb wagers (laughs) $4,018 because he hates us. And I'm sure because the number 18 means something to him. Probably he's not doing that just to get on my nerves, but I do like to see like the nice round numbers where I can do the math easily. And we're going to lose that now either way. So his clue is as a verb, the name of this cute little bird, California's official one means to become fearful. And they had a picture and he tried what is quaver, which I like the guess, but it's a quail. And that's interesting that he got to Q-U-A, like, because that's yeah. not, you know, the category is just official state stuff. If it right. was like a Q category, I see that. But he got, in terms of the letters, he got very close. Yeah, so close. Yeah. And Daily Double number three is in the Royal Past at the $1,600 level, pick number 11. And Tim finds it. He's at 9,000. Caleb is at 59.82. Maya's at 4,600. He wagers 3,000. Gets the clue from 1350 to 1830. The French used this seven-letter title for the eldest son of the King of France. I went through a lot of seven-letter titles, but I did not get to it. Neither did Tim. He guessed what is Marquis, but it is Dauphin. Yes. 
So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Caleb is at 9,582. Maya is at 7,800. Tim is at 8,800. Everybody has some trickier math to do because we don't have round numbers. Incidentally, if you, I, I, I like, I like round numbers, but if you feel like you, if you're up on stage and you feel like you're the one who's best at math, making a weird wager so that your opponents have to do tricky math is maybe a, a thing, you, maybe you a strategic do. thing you could do if you don't care about my viewing experience, <laughs> which you shouldn't. You shouldn't just play your own mm -hmm. game up there. The final Jeopardy category is names in the bookstore. And the clue is this man made lists, perhaps to cope with depression. A set of lists he published in 1852 made his name synonymous with a type of book. Maya's the only one who got it. She has who is, well, she pronounced, she spelled it Roget, R-O-G-E-T-T. -T. It's with one T. It's, we we're pretty sure it's Roger, but hey, that's correct. They take it. That brings her up to 15,600. Tim tried who is Webster. Not a bad guess, but not a correct one. He's wagered 6801, dropping him to 1999. And Caleb tried who is Smith. And frowny face because he doesn't know. <laughs> and he's wagered 8,019, which it drops him down to 1,563, which means that Maya will be one of our finalists, the third of mm -hmm. our finalists. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. I kept going back and forth between Bartlett and Roger. Yeah. I landed on Roger because I was like, you know, Bartlett's is known for quotations. Yeah, but... quote, familiar quotations, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but I, I felt like Roger was more correct i just spotted a clue in oh. the in the in the clue made his name synonymous that's ah, the, that's you're the, right that's, that's the giveaway yep that's it that's that's how you're supposed to decide between webster and roger and bartlett and whoever yes. yeah that's very it very clever that's, jeopardy writers that's the tip off okay yeah yeah so on wednesday for the finals we have the contestants justin bolson a first-year student at Brown University from Canton, Georgia, Maya Wright, a senior at Emory University from Peachtree City, Georgia, and Jackson Jones, a junior at Vanderbilt University from Louisville, Kentucky. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Mountain High, Valley Low, Famous Pairs, Liable in the Bible, <laughs> TV Reality and Competition Shows, Native Americana, and We Are Pro Antonyms, which you need to replace a word in the clue. That was a weird category. Yeah. Jackson was, I think, almost was not ruled correct, I think, or maybe maybe they would have given him a bit more specific at the $600 level. The Fifth Amendment prohibits double safety, trying you twice for the same crime. And he said, what is double jeopardy? That's fun because it's the show. Oh, I get it. And the round. But they just wanted the one word. So he corrected himself to what is jeopardy. It felt like a long kind of significant pause to me. Yeah. Yeah, like maybe they would not have taken the phrase instead of the one word. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. know. But he either way, he got it. And liable in the Bible was biblical figures who were guilty of something. Yeah. Maya had a tough miss there. The very first pick at the thousand dollar level, as told by Leonard Cohen, David sees this woman on a roof. His sin with her leads to the death of their child as punishment. I'm not sure what bringing up the Leonard Cohen song does here because the song doesn't mention no. the woman's name. Oh. I had that same thought, but I was like, maybe I don't know the song as well. 
Yeah. Maya rang in and said, who is Bethsaida? Bethsaida, I think she said. I think she said Bethsaida, which is a biblical city and very close to the correct response, which Justin got. It's Bathsheba. Daily Double number one is in that same liable in the Bible category at the $600 level. And it's the seventh pick. Justin finds it. He has... 1800. He's tied with Jackson. Maya is in the red at negative 200. He makes it a true daily double and gets the clue. These paired cities going after strange flesh are suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And he gets it correct. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Yep. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Justin is in the lead with 9,000. Jackson's at 4,800 and Maya's at 2,000. And the double Jeopardy categories are it happened in Asia health and medicine, fans of the singer, shake it off, anti-hero, that's anti like, you know, like auntie, like, yes, auntie, and you in quotation marks belong with me in quotation marks, letter U and then the letters M-E will come up in each correct response. That category title of you belong with me did not really help come up with the correct responses for me or apparently the contestants. Yeah. Yeah, they got the 800 and 1200. Nobody tried the 400. Thoreau wrote, if a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different one of these. That's a drummer. That was a very familiar quotation to me. So I was surprised that it was not familiar to them. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it could be generational too. They're a lot younger than I am. That was like an inspirational slogan that was like on posters and stuff. Sure. When I was like, I don't know, a teenager, maybe maybe it's out of fashion these days. I don't know. And I felt bad for Jackson at the $1,600 level and finished this celebration of the longest day of the year is called Johannus and is a national holiday. And he tried what is the summer solstice, but they did not category. they did not accept that as correct. They were looking for midsummer. I'm not really sure why summer solstice shouldn't be accepted yeah, I mean, if it's the longest day of the year, yeah, and it fits the category, yeah, I, yeah, I think they should have, yeah, but they didn't, alas. I w- I thought it was really charming when Maya got to call the first and second clue, which turned out to both be triple stumpers, and then apologized <laughs> for like no one having gotten it. It's okay. It's not your fault. Well, maybe maybe it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Daily double number. Two is in the health and medicine category at the $2,000 pick. It is pick number three. So Maya finds it after no one getting in on the other two. She is at 2,000. Jackson's at 4,800. Justin's at 9,000, which are the same scores we just had. And she wagers all 2,000 and gets the clue. Obesity has been linked to OSA or obstructive this disorder where breathing is disrupted while slumbering. And she gets it correct with what is sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And daily double number three is in It Happened in Asia at the $1,200 level. Justin finds it at the seventh pick. He's at 11,000 in the lead with Jackson at 8,000 and Maya at 4,000. He wagers 3,001 and he gets the clue on August 30, 1999. Almost 80% of the people of East Timor voted for independence from this country. And he gets it correct. It's Indonesia. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Jackson is at 14,000, Maya is at 4,400, and Justin is at 18,401. And the 
final Jeopardy category is geographic names the same. And the clue is the busiest passenger port in the UK shares its name with a capital of one of the original 13 states. Maya guessed what is York. That is incorrect. Wagered 1,030. Jackson got it correct with what is Dover and wagered 10,000. So he's up to 24,000. And Justin wrote what is Annapolis. Mom. Neither of those is correct. It's And he loses 48-31. So the score is going into the next game. Jackson at a nice round, 24,000. Maya's at 33-70. And Justin is at 13-5-70 for fun, I guess. <laughs> Before we go on, I forgot to mention the other production error. Those scores at the end of the game were shown at the beginning of the game because presumably something went wrong or something had to be re-recorded during Mayim's intro. And so they did a shot of the contestants under her intro, but it showed the scores from the end of the game rather oh, than blank no. p- blank lecterns. So. Oh, no, I missed that. I've been mm-hmm. dealing with fourth grade musical and haven't been paying attention to Jeopardy Twitter so much. Yes. And I missed it. Oh, yikes. Things slipped through the cracks, it would seem. So, anyway. Yeah. Huh. All right. Well, on to Thursday. The contestants are the same, and this being a two-day total point affair, we're going to take those subtotals, set them to the side. We'll bring them back at Final Jeopardy. Our Jeopardy round categories are college sports stuff, the long-ago 20th century, can we discuss with DIS in quotation marks a business major one syllable body parts and let's get dirty. I thought the the rebound on let's get dirty was fun. I thought at the thousand dollar level for a traditional Cajun dish, add chicken liver or gizzards to this, making it dirty. Justin mm-hmm. tried what is gumbo. That's incorrect. Jackson tried what is jambalaya. That's also incorrect. Maya got it. It's rice. Yeah, it's just rice. Yep. Dirty, dirty rice. Dirty rice. I thought we were going to get another one like that. Was it was the other one that I thought we were going to get? Oh, in this round, mm-hmm. I thought we were going to get another one a couple clues later, but then we didn't. The $600 level, same category, synonymous with handheld vacuum for many, has been picking up spilled cat litter and coffee grounds since 1979. Jackson tried what is a Hoover. Justin went bougie with what is Dyson. Yeah, um, really, man. <laughs> yeah. And Maya tried what is a dirt devil, which... I was torn between Dirt Devil and Dustbuster, which is what they were looking for here. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw a thing, the the $200 clue of business major was Yum tries to live up to its name, owning Taco Bell and this chain that boasts pepperoni lovers slices. I just yesterday saw some video i think it was a tiktok but i'm not on tiktok so it was like posted somewhere <laughs> it was else like a tiktok on instagram or facebook or, or wherever yeah some like about where this guy goes on a rant about how pepsi couldn't compete with coca-cola in the fast food scene like in the 70s so rather than try to get companies to like switch from coke to pepsi they just bought a few of them hmm and so Pepsi bought Pizza Hut and Taco Bell and KFC. And so like that's why they, they have Pepsi. And then they realized that it would be cheaper to have two restaurants in the same place rather than trying to do two 
like separate locations. So that's why you see combination Taco Bell, Pizza Hut's, KFC, Taco Bell's, mm-hmm. and all those. And then, and somehow it turned into like I don't know. It was a really weird video. So it was this explanation, and then it turned into like this. The so- was it the song? I'm at the Pizza Hut. I'm at the Taco Bell. No, no, it, no it not was, that. It, no, it was not that. It was like a rant about. It took some turn and like took some political like stance on something, huh? Which was really I don't I don't know I don't remember that. All I remember was learning that Yum was the name of the brand that like spun off of PepsiCo that owns those businesses, huh? Anyway, anyway, uh, Daily Double Number One is in the one syllable body parts category at the thousand dollar level. Jackson finds it at pick number four. He's at sixteen hundred. Mai's at zero. Justin's at one thousand. He bets it all. Gets the clue, macrophages destroy old or damaged cells when blood passes through this organ. And he guesses a decidedly not one-syllable body part. He guesses what is the liver, but that is Mm -hmm. the spleen. Yeah. The spleen does the blood stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rough break there. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jackson is at 3,600. Maya's at 2,400. Justin's at 3,000. It's very close. And we get the Double Jeopardy category's first words. Four-letter geography. There's a name in the title. Inside Ballet and Opera. You, Robot, and Take Me to Your Leader. $2,000 clue of Ballet and Opera. The opposite of legato. It's the term for short, clipped articulation employed by opera singers. But Maya got it correct with what is staccato. And that is that is absolutely correct. It is staccato. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it has to specify employed by opera singers, because to be like perfectly honest about the way that bel canto is sung it's usually not staccato Mm -hmm. it's usually decidedly not staccato in fact there's an entire term called cantabile which means singingly yes which is the opposite of staccato Mm -hmm. anyway yeah it's it's fine it's not wrong it's just not particularly accurate yeah we got some good guesses at the $1,600 level of four-letter geography. The clue is major industrial river valley region of northwest Germany. I guess Jackson was the only one that guessed. He guessed mm-hmm. what's the Elbe, which is a four-letter yeah. four-letter like river. Yeah. Not a bad guess. That's the Ruhr Valley, R-U-H-R. Yeah, um, I didn't which know that. I remembered it from Civilization Six. I believe uh... you, can, you can build the Ruhr Valley. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> Yes, as, yeah. Maya had a pretty dominant second round. She here. did. Yeah. Yeah. So she was the one who found Daily Double number two. It's the 12th pick of Take Me to Your Leader at the $1,200 level. She was at 4000 at this point with Jackson at 7200 and Justin at 7000 She wagered 3000 to tie for second, if she's correct, and gets the clue. As her son Clotar II was an infant when he became king in 584 AD, his mom, Fredegund, served as this type of queen until he came of age. And Maya gets it correct. It is queen regent. Mm-hmm. So that takes her into tied for second. Yes. Pretty, pretty much, yeah. And then um, she gets the next few. Yeah, and then she just kind of it's kind of just goes from there and gets into a pretty solid lead. Yep. Uh, And daily double number three is pick number 18. It's in the opera and ballet category at the $1,600 level. Jackson finds it. He's at 7,200. Maya's at 11,800. Justin's at 8,200. And he wagers 3,200 and gets the clue. 
This eight-letter piece of music comes before an opera and contains themes of the entire piece. And he is not able to come up with a response, but that is the overture. Mm-hmm. Also before musicals. Yes. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Maya has the lead with 14,200. Justin's at 11,000. Jackson is at 5,600. But we do have those scores from yesterday that we're going to bring back because it's a two-day total point affair. So the math is a little tricky for Final Jeopardy, where the category is landmarks and the clue is after its completion in the late 19th century, it was called a truly tragic street lamp and a high and skinny pyramid of iron ladders. If you are not positioned to win the tournament, this is not the Final Jeopardy clue that you want to see because this is not a difficult one. They all get it. Jackson, his response is, what is the Eiffel Tower? And then love you all. And that that's correct. He's wagered 5,598, giving him 11,198 for the game and 35,198 for the tournament. We go to Justin next. He's responded, what is the Eiffel Tower? And a shout out to his dad. Uh, he's wagered 10,991. That gives him 21,991 for the game and 35,561. For the tournament, he pulls ahead of Jackson by 363 dollars. Goodness. And Maya has the correct response as well. What is the Eiffel Tower? She does not have a shout out, but she did have a nice little tribute moment to her grandmother during the interviews. And she's wagered 7,040, which gives her 21,240 for the game and 24,610 for the tournament. So Justin is our tournament champion, winning $100,000 and a guaranteed spot in the tournament of champions. Yeah, that was that was quite a comeback. And it was yeah. close. It was so close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a few hundred dollars. So congratulations to Justin. He played well. All the, the finalists all played well. I thought they did a really good job with the yeah, final. I agree. And it was it was fun to see them back on jeopardy and uh yeah good set of games yeah and now we're back to regularly programmed jeopardy so on friday we have the contestants nick lauber an attorney from sherman oaks california jeanette peterson a graduate student originally from minneapolis minnesota and stephen webb who we haven't seen in a few weeks Mm -hmm. a data scientist from longmont colorado whose three-day cash winnings total $80,631. And we are, like we said at the start of the episode, we're just back into Ken Jennings and regular Jeopardy. The midweek change is so weird. It's very weird. It did not feel like a Friday episode. No, it did not. But we have the Jeopardy categories. Let's visit Nicaragua. Shopping at the mall. 20th century names. TV shows and other words hodgepodge, and from stem to stern. All correct responses showing up between those two words in the dictionary. Mm-hmm. And we heard at this point a few weeks ago that Stephen had spent some time in Nicaragua. Yes. And it paid off because yeah. he started by running the category. Mm-hmm. Interesting fact at the $200 level of hodgepodge per the 1960 census, women's median age at this life event 20.3. Stephen tried what is childbirth, but that was incorrect, and Nick got the rebound. It's marriage. In 1960, the median age of women at marriage was 20.3, which is mind-boggling. Median. <laughs> Half of them were younger. Yep. 
that's how a median works. That is how median works. That's also pretty young. Literal babies. No, not pretty figurative babies. Young. Your brain yeah. isn't finished developing when you're 20.3 years old. In the 20th century names category at the $600 level, there was a, a rebound that I'll get into it. The clue is um, a then record crowd at Pimlico watched and FDR delayed a conference to listen on radio as this underdog horse beat War Admiral in 1938. And of course, there was the movie, right? Mm -hmm. Nick guessed who is Secretariat and Stephen got the rebound with who is Seabiscuit. And if you haven't seen the movie, then you probably don't remember War Admiral or whatever. Um, Secretariat was much later than 1938, if I recall correctly. And also, Secretariat, for people who don't know horses all that well, like, you know a few names of, of like, the famous horses for trivia purposes. Secretariat was supposed to win. Secretariat mm -hmm. was a big, strong horse, and everyone expected it to win, and it did. Seabiscuit was the underdog, mm -hmm. kind of just across the board as far as horses go. Most yeah. of the other horse names, you know, were probably the favorites. Yeah. Every time I think about Secretariat, I think about Bojack Horseman. Still haven't um, watched it. I watched the first couple seasons. I don't know how it went after that. Hmm. Daily Double number one is at the $800 level of 20th century names. And Jeanette finds it seven clues in. She has 1,000. Steven's at 2,000. Nick is at negative 1,000. So round, such such round mm -hmm. numbers. Um, she makes it a true daily double and gets the clue. His brother, Ted, eulogized him in 1968 as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to right it. And she got it correct with Bobby Kennedy. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Stephen's at 8,200. Jeanette is at 2,000. Nick is at 1,000. So out of the red, but he'll select first in the double Jeopardy round where the categories are future Oscar winners, biology, getting schooled, tool talk, national official languages, and literary before and after. Nobody got the $1,600 level of literary before and after. The lost symbol author who can often be quite grisly. That's a Dan Brown bear. Thought that yeah, was funny. I I thought that was funny too. For me, the the disconnect in that answer is that bear is just kind of a thing, right? Whereas at the eight hundred dollar level, it was century plus conflict between England and France involving a sci fi invasion of Martians and towering tripods. That's the hundred years war of the worlds, and I realize the hundred years war is not a literary thing. I don't know. It just seemed weird. It yeah. seemed out of place, maybe because it wasn't a title of something. I don't know. I just yeah. I honestly, I would have liked the literary before and afters to be literary in both the before and the after. Hmm. I think across the board, like one but not both halves were literary. Yeah, yeah. We could have pushed this clue a little bit further and made it like, you know, the lost symbol author something something Eric. Carl rhyming, whatever, and it could have been what is Dan Brown Bear, Brown Bear, what do you see? But maybe that that's too deep. would have been a bit deep, I think. <sighs> do people not know the complete works of Eric Carl? <laughs> I was gonna say that that's not the top of the Eric Carl list, I don't think. So <laughs> put it in the top five, right? Like I mean the very hungry caterpillar is really the one. I mean, yeah. That's yeah. really what it was 
getting at. Yeah. yeah. Daily Double number two is in the national official languages category at the $1,200 level. Pick number seven, Jeanette finds it. She's at 2400 Stevens at 7400 Nick's at 2200 She wagers 2000 and gets the clue German, French, Italian, and Romanche. And she gets it correct with what is Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three, uh, we are back in the literary before and after category at the $1,200 level. Steven uncovers this one at the 11th pick. And he wagers 3,000 of his 9,000. Uh, Jeanette is at 5,600 at this point, and Nick is at 3,000. And his clue is Prussian monarch, military genius, whose jazz age story plays out on Long Island. And he gets it corrected as Frederick the Great Gatsby. I like that one. Yeah, me too. Uh, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, that, uh, that daily double kind of got Steven moving and he pretty much dominated the rest of the round. So he is in a lock position at 20,400. Jeanette's at 9,600 and Nick is at 5,400. And the final Jeopardy category is invasions. And the clue is backed by 14,000 troops. He invaded England to restore, in his words, its religion, laws, and liberties. Uh, This turned into a triple stumper. Nick guessed who is William the Conqueror and wagered 4201. So that was incorrect. Jeanette also guessed who was William the Conqueror and wagered 8,000. And Stephen wagered 150. He didn't have a lot of room to wiggle anyway. And he guessed who was Charles II, which was closer to that. But that was William of Orange. William of Orange of the Glorious Revolution. So Stephen wins his fourth day and breaks the $100,000 mark. And we are suddenly at the end of the week after only one day with Ken. So weird. So weird. But Stephen will be back next week. And this is the point in the middle of the episode where we remind you we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. You can go there to support us financially if you want to help with the costs of putting together this very important show. You can also find some quiz questions, which... I will do what I often do and tell myself that I'm going to post them. Yeah, I did that last week after being like, oh, yes, I feel saucy about 60% of the time. We were the other 40%. I forgot. I'm sorry. That's hey, me too. But we do our best to put some stuff up there. Who knows if in the future we may get some some more stuff. Can't, I'm not going to promise anything, but it is on our minds. I will say. Uh, And of course, there are more important things in our podcast. We like to point to a number of different causes or organizations that we think are doing good work. You can find those in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So Emily, what deep dive topic am I talking about? Are you talking about William of Orange? Of course I'm talking about William of Orange. Yay, because I was still trying to find a third guess. Because it's a final Jeopardy. Yep. That was a triple stumper. We had a Uh, couple of those this week, but one of them was a name that some of us recognized, and the other one was a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Samuel Samuel Mudd. Dr. Samuel Mudd would have been my second guess, but I thought William of Orange was, I don't know, more reasonable yes you know like it crossed my mind to talk about dr samuel mudd and i was like you know what no i am not gonna lend credence to this legitimate that if the if the only notable thing about this guy is that he set john wilkes booth's leg then i i think we're okay letting him fade to history (laughs) like if he did other things awesome 
Yeah. I guess I could have found out if I'd done a deep dive, but it just, it seemed like, I don't know, maybe I'm a bit bitter about that one. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I'm talking about William of Orange and the Glorious Revolution, like, not necessarily, it's not going to be the deep dive, but I'm going to focus on that with William of Orange. Mm-hmm. So here we go. William of Orange was a Dutch prince. He was the Prince of Orange from birth, the Stadtholder of Holland, Zeeland, Utrecht, Gilders, and Overijssel in the Dutch Republic from the 1670s, and he became King of England, Ireland, and Scotland from 1689 until his death in 1702. As King of Scotland, he was known as William II, and in England, he is known as William III, sometimes also referred to informally as King Billy in Ireland and Scotland, which is fun. He was the only child of William II, Prince of Orange, and Mary, Princess Royal, who was the daughter of King Charles I of England, Scotland, and Ireland. Notice that I am referring to them as kings of England, Scotland, and Ireland. That's because this is before the Act of Union in 1708, I think. But the Act of Union was the parliamentary act that essentially unified the United Kingdom, or at least established Great Britain as like a single entity and named the monarch of England and Scotland as like simply the King of Britain or the Queen of Britain. So their title officially at this point was the King of England, Scotland, and Ireland. William's father died a week before his birth, making William III Prince of Orange from birth. He was a Protestant and participated in several wars against the powerful Catholic ruler Louis XIV of France in coalition with Protestant and Catholic powers in Europe. Uh, And such, he was heralded as a champion of Protestantism and Protestants in Europe. So he was born in The Hague on the 4th of November, 1650. That was in the Dutch Republic. At this time, like what we think of as the Netherlands, and really to put ourselves in the mindset, remember that Europe at this time does not have the nation states that we think of nowadays. Many states are small, a lot of different principalities or duchies or kingdoms rule themselves and later become consolidated into the countries that we now think of. So the Netherlands, the low countries, were a republic of numerous states, including the ones that I named so far, which were Utrecht and Holland and Zeeland and Gilders, as well as a number of others that I will mention as we go through. He was the only child, like I said, of Mary and Stadtholder of William II, Prince of Orange. And like I mentioned, his mother was the eldest daughter of King Charles I of England, Scotland, and Ireland, and sister of King Charles II and King James II of England and seventh of Scotland. William's mother showed little personal interest in him. She was often absent for years, and uh, she always stayed away from Dutch society. His education was put in the hands of several Dutch governesses, and then some English as well. He received daily instruction in Reformed religion from the Calvinist preacher Cornelis Trigland, and was raised, you know, Calvinist. It is thought that one of his tutors, Constantine Huygens, taught him that he was predestined predestined to become an instrument of divine providence, fulfilling the historical destiny of the House of Orange-Nassau. So his house, like the House of Orange became combined with the House of Nassau, which we now know or think of, you know, Nassau is the capital of the Bahamas. So anything named Nassau is named for the royal family of the Netherlands as well. So yeah, he obviously believed in predestination. Well, I shouldn't say obviously, as a Calvinist. (laughs) If you didn't know, Calvinists believe in predestination. So he believed that he had that purpose. It's not great Calvinism. Calvinism involves believing in predestination, but not necessarily in knowing with confidence 
the nature of your own predestination, right? right. It's like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I'm, I'm not trying to make that claim. I'm, <laughs> yes, I'm just, I'm just saying, like as a general thing, that is a concept that they. Yep. That they oh hold. yeah, yeah, yeah. It is not great theology on his part. Right. But, you know, that's okay. He's not a theologian. Yeah, that is true. He was not. He went to the University of Leiden for a formal education, and so Leiden, I think Leiden, L E I D N. It's in the Netherlands. Did yeah, they I've pronounce been to Leiden. In the Netherlands. Okay, then perhaps it is the University of Leiden. So, this is all his, uh, you know, his education, which had been taken charge of by, essentially, the uh, the states of Holland, under the the guidance of his uncle Cornelis de Graeff and the Grand Pensionary Johan de Witt. The de Witt family had some involvement with William throughout his time. In December 1660, his mother died of smallpox while visiting her recently restored brother, King Charles II. And in her will, Mary requested that Charles look after William's interests, at which point Charles now demanded that the states of Holland end their interference in William's affairs. They complied. So that year, William began to write letters to his uncle, and some of the Dutch nobility began writing to Charles, asking him to help William become Stadtholder someday. So this began this intrigue between the, the Dutch nobility and the English crown. The Second Anglo-Dutch War broke out, and it was fought, and one of Charles's peace conditions was the improvement of the position of his nephew, William. Uh, at the time, William was 16, and the states officially made him a ward of the government, or a child of state, which I like that term. And all pro-English quarters were removed from William's company. So this put him at odds with the rest of the Dutch kind of powers that be, which comes up later. So after the death of William's father, most of the provinces had left the office of Stadtholder vacant, which is kind of like the highest rank of, I guess, civil servant in the Dutch Republic. There had been a demand at the end of the First Anglo-Dutch War, which had been between the English Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell and the Dutch Republic. It required the Act of Seclusion, which forbade the province of Holland from appointing a member of the House of Orange as Stadtholder. Uh, however, after the English Restoration, the Crown said that the Act of Seclusion no longer applied because that was an agreement between the Commonwealth and the Dutch Republic, not the Kingdom of England and the Dutch Republic. So supporters in the Netherlands tried to push for William to be Stadtholder again as he approached the age of 18. There were movements to get him as both Stadtholder and Captain General, but De Witt and other leaders of the state's party declared that the Captain General or Admiral General of the Netherlands could not serve as Stadtholder in any province, and so there's this back and forth. I'm not going to get into the specifics of it. Like some Zealand named him first noble. And there's just a bunch of back and forth of some nobles being like, no, he can't have that much power. And others being like, oh, no, he totally should have that much power. So in 1670, the province of Holland, which was the center of anti-Orangism, abolished the office of, of Stadtholder. And De Witt demanded that an oath from each Holland regent to uphold their edict. And all but one complied. William was, however, named Captain General, and he was made a member of the Council of State for the Dutch Republic. In November 1670, William obtained permission to travel to England to urge Charles to pay back at least part of the nearly three million guilder debt that the House of Stuart owed to the House of Orange. Charles was unable to pay, but William agreed to reduce the amount to 1.8 million guilders. Uh, Charles found his nephew to be a dedicated Calvinist and patriotic Dutchman, 
and had been considering showing him the secret treaty of Dover, which was a treaty between England and France that was directed at destroying the Dutch Republic and installing William as a sovereign of a Dutch rump state, which a rump state is just like what remains of a state after it's been invaded or annexed or whatever. However, Charles kind of decided not to do that because his uh, nephew didn't seem like he would be into that. The security of the Republic deteriorated quickly over the next year, and an Anglo-French attack became imminent. As such, the states of Gelderland wanted to appoint William Captain General of the Dutch State's Army as soon as possible, and the state of Utrecht in December of 1761 made that their official policy. There was a little bit of argument, but eventually all the, the Dutch states agreed to appoint him for one summer to be the Captain General of the Republic Army. During that time, he had written a secret letter to Charles asking his uncle to exploit the situation by exerting pressure on the states to appoint him Stadtholder. Charles, however, took no action on that. 1762 is known as the Rompjaar, or Disaster Year, in the Netherlands because it had the Franco-Dutch War and the Third Anglo-Dutch War, in which the Netherlands was invaded by France and England, Munster, and Cologne. At the Battle of Solbay, the Anglo-French fleet was disabled, but the French army quickly overran the provinces of Gelderland and Utrecht. Uh, the Dutch had to retreat to the Dutch waterline on the 8th of June. At that point, Louis XIV believed the war was over and began negotiations to extract a large sum of money from the Dutch. However, the Dutch decided to hold out, and William began to establish himself as the real leader. Johann de Witt, who I had mentioned before, had been unable to act as Grand Pensionary after being wounded in an attempt on his life on June 21st. And at that time, William, or, or a little bit after that, William published a letter from Charles in which the English king stated that he had made war because of the aggression of the De Witt faction. And so the people of the Netherlands, well, some people in the Netherlands, saw that as a good enough reason to go after De Witt and his brother Cornelis and brutally murder them on the 20th of August. Mm. William then began replacing Dutch regents with his own followers. The war continued through 1762. I'm not going to get into this war all that much. And it fought until 1676. The last years of the war saw little return on the investment for men and money. And the French actually ended up feeling as though they had lost because they had expected to be able to overrun this Dutch army. They had expected to make great gains. William was good at fighting wars of attrition. And when I say good at it, I mean he really didn't care much about the losses that his side endured, as long as he caused those losses on the other side. So by the end of it, the war had seen the rebirth of the Dutch state's army as one of the most disciplined and best trained European armed forces. And it put William in a position as kind of antithetical to Louis XIV. William became, among Europeans, the notable Protestant monarch opposed to the Catholic rule of Louis XIV, and also at this time of Charles II in England. So during the war with France, William tried to improve his position by marrying his first cousin Mary, the elder surviving daughter of the Duke of York, who would later become King James of England and James VII of Scotland. Mm -hmm. uh, she was 11 years his junior, and uh, there was a bit of resistance, but shortly King Charles relented and they were married on the 4th of November, 1677. She became pregnant soon after marriage, but miscarried and a further illness in 1678 made it so she could never conceive again. 
Due to the previous war and just continued tension between Catholic and Protestant, there was increased tension with France. William remained suspicious of Louis, thinking that the French king desired universal kingship over Europe, and Louis described William as his mortal enemy. Mm. (laughs) After his marriage in 1677, William became a strong candidate for the English throne, should his father-in-law and uncle James be excluded because of his Catholicism. And so around this time, the exclusion bill was passed in the English parliament, which essentially said that no Catholic could become king after Charles. And of course, James II was the one who was expected to succeed him, and James was Scottish, was Catholic, the House of Stuart. So in 1685, when James II did succeed Charles, William reached out to English nobles trying to essentially get them to resist that. He didn't want to offend anybody, but he was kind of testing the waters, and he was really always looking for a way to diminish the power of France. So he was hopeful that King James might join the League of Augsburg, which was a basically anti-French coalition of the Netherlands, the Holy Roman Empire, some German states, but it became clear that James would not join the anti-French alliance. In November, James' second wife, Mary, was announced to be pregnant, and so William wrote an open letter to the English people in which he disapproved of James's pro-Roman Catholic policy of religious toleration. Uh, English politicians at that point began urging William to mount an armed invasion of England. He was opposed to it at first, But by April 1688, he began to assemble an expeditionary force. It was clear that France would be occupied by campaigns in Germany and Italy, so he wouldn't need to worry about that so much. In June of that year, Mary of Modena, who was James's wife, gave birth to a son, James Francis Edward Stuart, which displaced William's uh, wife, Mary, in the line of succession, and it raised the prospect of an ongoing Catholic monarchy. So that, along with some other like pro-Catholic, anti-Protestant events, really got the English people riled up against the crown. On the 30th of June, 1688, seven political figures in England, known as the Immortal Seven, wrote a formal invitation to William to come and take over. So with a Dutch army, William landed at Brixham in the southwest of England on the 5th of November. He came ashore proclaiming the liberties of England and the Protestant religion I will maintain. This fleet that he crossed with was vastly larger than the Spanish Armada that had tried 100 years earlier, 463 ships, which I don't think the Jeopardy clue was entirely accurate because there were 11,000 foot soldiers, 4,000 cavalry, which is 15,000, so about 14,000, which is what the Mm -hmm. Jeopardy clue said. Also, 5,000 volunteers from England and France. James's support began to dissolve almost immediately upon his arrival, and Protestant officers defected from the English army, most notably Lord Churchill of Eyemouth, who was a very high-up commander. Mm. James at first attempted to resist William, but quickly saw that his efforts would prove futile. He sent representatives to negotiate with William, but tried to flee secretly on December 21st. Um, He was caught by a group of fishermen and brought back. However, he was allowed to leave for France on the 23rd of December. William knew that letting him leave of his own volition was in his best interest rather than making him a martyr or making it seem like he was being forced to leave. And that means that William of Orange was the last person to successfully invade England by force of arms. Mm. However, there really wasn't much fighting, which is why it's called the Glorious Revolution. Or there are a number of reasons why it's called the Glorious Revolution, but one reason is because it was basically bloodless, even though it was an armed invasion. Mm -hmm. Quickly after that, William summoned a convention of parliament to discuss the appropriate course of action following James's flight. 
After some argument, eventually everyone agreed that James had abdicated the throne and therefore it was empty. And after a lot of argument, they decided that the heir apparent, King James's infant son, was not to be named, but instead William and Mary were joint sovereigns who would rule until both of their deaths, rather than mm -hmm. just one of their deaths. Like if Mary had died before William, under previous arrangements, William would have lost his authority. So that is essentially the Glorious Revolution. The Catholic population of Ireland, however, was not into it. Obviously, they were in support of the Catholic monarch, James II. So after he fled to France, he gathered some French supporters and through Ireland began some uprisings. But after the Battle of, I believe, the Boyne, yeah, the Battle of the Boyne, the resistance in Ireland was essentially put down. And at that point, England, Scotland, and Ireland were firmly united under William of Orange. Mm -hmm. There is a lot more to it, to his reign. Obviously, that's just how he got there. Under his rule, Parliament and the English and British population actually gained a lot of rights, like the Bill of Rights of 1689 was passed. William didn't like it, but he didn't want to push back against it, given that he had just arrived like with mm -hmm. an invading army. So a parliament, like I said, gained a lot of power, and the power of the crown was somewhat reduced during his time. He was up against what was known as the Jacobite resistance. So the Jacobites were supporters of James, and some were in England, many were in Scotland, a lot were in Ireland, which I mentioned. He also became involved in the Nine Years' War against France, and later in life, I will mention, after Mary died in 1694, his popularity plummeted. There were a number of rumors of homosexuality, given that he showed some favoritism to some young men. When those rumors were brought to him, he said, it seems to me very extraordinary that it should be impossible to have esteem and regard for a young man without it being criminal. Hmm. So who knows? But William and Mary also had no heirs. And so after William died, in 1702, Mary's sister Anne Stuart became Queen of England. However, she also had no surviving heirs, and so it was decided that after her, Sophia, Electress of Hanover, would assume the throne, and that is where the House of Hanover comes in after the House of Stuart. William died of pneumonia in 1702 from complications from a broken collarbone after falling off of his horse, Sorrel. Hmm. He was also the last member of the House of Orange to serve as Stadtholder of Holland and the majority of other provinces in the Dutch Republic. Uh, after William of Orange, other people claimed some rights, including Frederick William of Prussia and William IV of Orange. Whew, so I just talked a lot about him. There's a lot more, but I think that's more relevant to the clue in Jeopardy and to really know what's about him. So William of Orange in the Netherlands, William III in England, William II in Scotland, mm -hmm. all, all the same person, all the same person, and also William and Mary. Yep. This has been very helpful. I uh, feel like we're pulling together some pieces that I had not synthesized really well. So thank you. Yeah, this period in English history has always kind of eluded me because there's a lot of changes, right? There was James I and Charles I and then Oliver Cromwell and the Commonwealth and then the Restoration with Charles II and then James II and then the Glorious Revolution. Yes. All happening within this, you know, less than 100 years. 
Yeah, gets very muddled in my brain. So I feel, I feel like we've untangled it a little bit. Well, good. All right, you ready for a quiz? I'm definitely ready for a quiz. Hopefully okay. it's not about English history because as discussed. It is not. It is not. It is about orange. Ooh, okay. So here we go. Question one. There are over 600 types of oranges, classified as either sweet or bitter. For one point each, name all of them. No, I'm just kidding. The sweet... <laughs> We're going to have a thousand point quiz today. <laughs> I, you know what? If you could name all 600 types of oranges, by all means, go for it. I absolutely cannot. Yeah. No. So classified as either sweet or bitter. The sweet ones are obviously more popular and include blood oranges, navel oranges, and what thin-skinned variety named for a Spanish city? Oh, named for a Spanish city. Thin-skinned. I, you said thin-skinned variety, and I was all ready to be like tangerines, but I think those may be a separate thing altogether, and that's not a Spanish city. Is it uh, Seville is coming to mind. I'm gonna, is it is it Seville oranges? The one I am going for is Valencia oranges. Oh, Valencia! Now I have to look up, are there Seville oranges? Seville oranges are a thing. Let's see if they're a sweet. They... Oh, they are a bitter orange. Oh, oh no! no. Are they, I think they're, are they used in marmalade, possibly? I bet they are. I bet that's why I know that. They are also known as marmalade oranges. Yep, yep. If they had been sweet variety, I would have. Only if they're thin-skinned, which I don't think they are. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Sorry, yeah, Valencia is what I was going for. Yeah, once you said it. That I was like, all right, that that fits better. Which apparently, Valencia oranges originate from Southern California. And the person who, like, cultivated that particular strand, just like, I guess there are stories of oranges from Valencia being really good. And so he named them Valencia oranges. Okay. So there we are. You're still at 10 points. Yeah. So it's okay. Uh, Question two. What cocktail made with vodka, triple sec, and orange juice shares its name with a 1988 R.E.M. song? which I always enjoyed playing in Rock Band or Guitar Hero. I think it was Rock Band. I think it was Rock Band. Vodka, triple sec, and orange juice. That is not the only drink with this name. Huh. Though the more popular one is not a an alcoholic beverage. Oh. Huh. Wait, there is a more popular? There's a more popular drink, drink with the same name. With the same name. And an R.E.M. song. I am not remembering any R.E.M. songs. Let me see if I can get to the cocktail. Just vodka and orange juice is a screwdriver. I, f- I missed a an ingredient. Also, lemon-lime juice can be added to it. Okay. If that helps. I'm not sure it does. I'm trying to think of non-alcoholic drinks with, like, a name that would also be an REM song. If you're not pulling it right away yeah, with the I'm REM not, song, not... I don't I don't know that you're going to be able to figure that part out. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I, I don't think I have it. Uh, I'm going to say Sunny Delight. Mm. That's not a bad guess. It's Orange Crush. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I get that. I didn't know it, though, either the song or the cocktail. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. Orange Crush is put out by... Keurig Dr. Pepper, which I did not realize was the same company. But Neither no, I did I. All right, question three. Orange is the solid color of the soccer kits for the Netherlands national team. 
It's also the sole official color of what American university? It's not Clemson because Clemson is orange and purple. I think maybe this is the, I think it might be Syracuse University, right? I'm thinking the Syracuse orange men. That's it, what I'm guessing. It is Syracuse. Yes. Yay. Syracuse orange. According to their website. Right, right, right. Sorry. Orange. Yeah. It's just the orange. It's just the <laughs> orange, orange men, now. <laughs> it's the Syracuse orange man group. Yeah. According to their website in 1890, they just decided to change their colors, I guess, to something huh. bold. And they were looking at orange and blue or orange is primary and blue is secondary, but no university had taken just like orange, like just that. Yeah. And so they decided to go with that. Uh, apparently their colors before were light pink and pea green and light pink and blue. <laughs> Which like, good for you, Syracuse. You made the right choice. So yes, Syracuse indeed. Yay. Uh, you are I... at 20 points. I thought I was going to get you with Clemson. I was like, I bet she's going to think of Clemson first. Oh, I know a little too much to fall into that trap. Yes. All right. Question four. The Orange River, or Aranya Rivier, is the longest river in what country, which also includes the former Orange Free State? Oh. I have talked about the Orange Free State in a previous deep dive, and I have also crossed this river. Okay. All right. So I think we're in Africa here i would assume like an african country with a dutch colonial history which normally would point me to south africa but i've traveled in south africa and this isn't sounding right and i think you haven't and you've traveled in namibia which is the other country that comes to mind i think yeah i'm gonna go with namibia let's see that is okay that is incorrect it is south South Africa. africa It is oh, South Africa. No. Yes. Okay. I have been to Namibia, and I have been to South Africa. Uh, I did not realize or didn't remember that you'd been to South Africa. Yes. The Orange River is, it does go through Namibia. However, the Zambezi also is in Namibia and is longer. Is longer in Namibia, yep. Mm-hmm. So I believe that that is not something I can accept. Yeah, I should have gone with my first instinct there. No, you shouldn't accept it. It is South Africa, and the Orange yeah. Free State was one yeah, of... Yeah, Orange Free State should have sent me to South and just stuck with South Africa. Okay, question five. Yeah, for those of you wondering, though, I talked about the Orange Free State in my deep dive about the Boer War. The Boer Wars, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, question five. Orange is the classic example of a word with no rhymes in the English language. There are, however, at least two other common colors that don't have rhymes. One is a secondary color of, like, paint, not like light, if you get what I mean. And the other is also an element. So name them for five points each. All right. Purple is the first one. Purple is one. Okay. One that is also an element. Let's see. Colors that are elements that don't have rhymes. Gold is a color and an element, but it has rhymes. Silver. Is it a color? Is it shiny gray? Does it have rhymes? Just sitting here running through the entire alphabet to see if I can find rhymes for silver. Uh, It might be silver. I got to S and was like, silver! (laughs) No, (laughs) Silver rhymes with silver? I I think it's silver. I'm going to go with silver. And that's a good choice because it is silver. Yay! Nice. Well done. I logicked it out and I didn't (laughs) overthink it and miss it. Yeah. 
Everyone loves to say nothing rhymes with orange, but like you could just as easily say nothing rhymes with purple and be correct. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. I don't know, which I'd never thought about. It had never occurred to me that there's no rhyme for purple. Are there rhymes for beige? I mean, besides grage, which is or just like, a portmanteau of gray and beige. So of would course it rhymes. age be a rhyme with beige? No, because the G is like, it's yeah, the J versus J. Macrophage? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It depends on how hard you hit that G, really. Yeah. Anyway. All right. You're at 30 I'm at, I'm at points. 30, yeah. It hasn't been great. I, I'm sorry. I should let you tell me the category before I tell you I'll wager all the points. That's fine. The category is, isn't it obvious? Okay. I will wager all of my points. Okay. All right. Here we go. A descriptor of the country of William's origin and his family name Contribute to what three-word phrase that could be used for my choice of deep dive, given that it was a missed Final Jeopardy? It may not be obvious to me. I'm looking for a three-word phrase. A three-word phrase describing your choice of this deep dive topic. Mm -hmm. It's just not coming to me. I don't feel like I can just give up on it, though. So the first word is the descriptor of... William's country of origin. Right. So, Dutch, I would assume. What could it be? Yeah, I, I, I think I'm going to have to take the zero. Like, I'm just not getting it. Yeah. All right. I give up. What is it? Oh, low hanging fruit. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, of course it is. Isn't it obvious? It was. It was obvious. Yeah, I got very stuck on trying to think of a three-word idiom that had the word Dutch Dutch. in it. (laughs) Yeah, when you said Dutch, I was like, oh, no, that's not. No, they're the low countries. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, that's an excellent question, though. Thank you. The writing was beautiful. I'm so sorry I missed it. That is okay. I'm sorry that I made a harder quiz than I meant to. I'm going to blame daylight saving time for this one. Like, I'm just... I am not firing on all cylinders today. And that's okay. You know what? We are allowed to have that, especially when the government decides that we're just supposed to be tired for the next week. Yeah. Why? Why is it like this? I'm not an anarchist normally, but around this time of year. Yeah. I I forgot it was daylight saving time until it was 11 o'clock. And I realized that I was supposed to set the clocks forward oh, no. before going to sleep. Oh, and no. I hadn't finished all the things that I needed to get done for Sunday morning. Oh, no, that means it's already midnight. Uh. Yeah. Yes. I'm like, all right, it is midnight and I am going to start some work tasks. And this is bad. It's bad. It's so bad. Um, yeah. Anyway, maybe someday daylight saving time won't be a thing anymore. We can hope. Yeah. Well, this has been delightful. I'm sorry that I bombed your quiz it happens it's fine yeah it's, no, i'm it sorry does. that i didn't make it more accessible no no no. That's, that's that's how trivia is well hey thanks listeners for joining us i hope you got more of the quiz questions than i did make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts leave a rating or review if you would if you want to check out our patreon it's patreon.com slash potent and if you have friends who are jeopardy fans let them know about our podcast you can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. 
Yeah, and we'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.